You know, a few weeks back, or a few months back rather, the Surgeon General raised an alarm. He said that there was something transpiring in our culture that was really affecting our mental, our spiritual, and our emotional health. He would describe it almost as a, not a viral epidemic, but more of a social epidemic. One that has cataclysmic impact on our health and our total well-being. And no, it's not a virus. No, it's not bacteria. No, it's not fungi. But rather, it's this idea of loneliness. And what we learn, what we learn or what we learned in his study recently is that loneliness has been associated with a number of different health defects. Number one, when you have a greater likelihood for loneliness, what you experience is cardiovascular disease and dementia and depression, anxiety, premature death, and a bunch of other things. And so what he said, being socially disconnected has the mortality impact similar to smoking 15 packs of cigarettes a day. Or rather, smoking 15 cigarettes a day. You like 15 packs, Jesus. I better get some friends. So what's happening is, is even surpassing things like obesity and inactivity. Because people are finding themselves socially isolated, not building lasting relationships. And because of that, it's causing a real epidemic in our society. But you don't, even, you don't only see it in your health. You also see it oftentimes in your productivity at work and school. When students are lonely at school and don't have those tight-knit relationships, it causes for their grades to decrease and for relationships to fracture. It, when they don't have that connectivity at work, it causes performance to go down. This is, friends, a social epidemic that's going on and is having wide-range impact in all of society. But in light of that, I want you to know that we have some, in light of those profound consequences, I want you to know that the church has a profound opportunity. We have an opportunity as well as an obligation to let people know that God has a solution for loneliness and isolation and is something called the local church. The, the local church, let me, let me just help somebody. Maybe you're new here and maybe you haven't been a part of church before. Let me just tell you, church is so much more than good music and a TED talk on Sunday mornings. It's so much than hearing songs that you're learning and standing in worship. It's so much more than that. No, no. One author describes it as a body. It's a body. It's a body of interconnected yet distinct parts that are working in unison and harmony with one another. And the reason, let me just say this, and I don't mean to cast any aspersions on any churches, but I, I would say the reason that many churches in the, that are considered the body are lacking in their range of motion in order to reach people that are far from Jesus or not being effective in prayer and where we're unable to curb isolation is because we're acting like individual appendages instead of interconnected parts. We need one another. Can you imagine if the eye just decided that it was going to do everything? Can you imagine if you tried to have stability in your legs, but you had no strength in your kneecaps? So what happens is, is when you have one weak part of the body or one part of the body that is not in concert or not close to the other parts of the body, what it does is it hinders all of us. Does that make sense? So beyond Sunday gatherings, church, we need not only should we work as interconnected parts, but the local church is powerful because it helps. It's a community of people that will be there with you during your sorrows. 
It's also a church that a church will be there at the joyful times in your life. See, a lot of times we have in our social circles, we are able to celebrate with our friends, but sometimes we're not able to mourn with our friends. And so what's happening, friends, is the church, well, somebody might be like, well, pastor, I'm a part of the church. I'm a part of the CrossFit community. I'm, I'm glad you're getting healthy. Amen. I'm a part of a book club. I, I've got a, a tight knit group of friends. I've got family. Well, families tend to be internal. Families tend to not have a mission. CrossFit is great. I want you to get as much health and, and great health as possible. But your CrossFitters typically don't challenge you on your sinful lifestyle. What the church is doing is fostering spiritual maturity, helping keep you accountable, but also keeping you accountable to this great mission that we have, which is sharing the gospel with people and seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God expanded into all the region. Does that make sense? So I'm not saying that church community is better than any other community. I'm just saying it has an advantage that other communities don't because you're connected to this transcendent mission to bring or see the gospel reach people who don't know Jesus and settle their eternal destinies. Does that make sense? So listen, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a melanated preacher. And so because of that, I'm used to you uh, talking back to me a little bit. Okay. So if I say something that resonates, you can say, I hear you, sir. You can say, put your weight on it. I don't mind that. If it hurts, you can say, ouch. But what we're not going to do is look at me with the blank stare. Amen, somebody. We're not going to, not today, not today. If you're going to look at me with the blank stare, you better be taking notes. Amen, somebody. Come on, that's what I'm talking about. So the church, friends, is a vibrant community. There you go. That was your point. It was a vibrant community of interconnected parts of people working in conjunction with one another to see the local, of bo- the local body of Christ established right here in Cherry Hill and universally. All right, okay, we're good. We're good now. I'm like, I've been, I preached at some churches on my break. I was like, oh, no, no, no. I'm not going to do blank stairs when I get back to Accelerate Church. <laughs> That's not going to happen. We don't have to be black Baptists, but y'all got to talk back to me in here. Okay, all right. And so we're starting this new sermon collection, not series, collection, called We're Better Together. And this this series is intended to delve deep into the church community. And so today I want to talk about the importance of church community. And next week I want you to come back because I'm going to talk about one of the biggest impediments from us engaging in church community, which is not loneliness, it's church hurt. And so next week, I want you to come back because I'm going to preach about church hurt. But this week, I want to delve into the importance of why you should be a part of a Christ-centered community and what that looks like, okay? And so at Accelerate Church, we believe that the formula that God prescribes to combat loneliness are intentionally forming groups called crews. Crews are groups of 5 to 15 people that get together on a regular basis, that do life together, that read the scriptures, that build relationships, that pray for one another, and that share a meal or coffee across the table. So these are individuals that are going in the same spiritual direction, and they're seeking to grow closer to Jesus over time. And so what I want to do from the book of Acts today, chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, and also 37 and 38, is I want to make the case for what a crew should look like and why each of us should be a part of a crew. Does that make sense? And so, but before I do, let me back it up to Acts 2 so that you can get full context of what we're doing today, all right? Because guess what? I'm going to preach the gospel today. Oh my gosh, I set you up. I set you up. So the book of Acts, let me give you a little background, okay? 
The book of Acts is actually the second part of Luke's writing. The first book that Luke wrote was the book that bears his name called Luke. The second one was the book of Acts. And so he gathers, what he does is he gathers eyewitness testimony. And he goes on and he does his research and he writes this historical document to tell us about the activities of the early church. So we learn about the activities, we learn about the challenges, we learn about the growth, and we learn about how Christianity spread all throughout this region. And so as we reach Acts 2, Jesus catches the Uber up to heaven. They're standing there gazing at Jesus. Another angel comes down and says, hey, why do you stand up gazing? Don't you know that this Jesus who has gone up in heaven is going to come back down in like fashion? And so they decided that they were going to go and they were going to spend time in the upper room praying and fasting and asking God to show up on their behalf. And so while they're praying and fasting, there was a day that happened called Pentecost. Somebody say Pentecost. Pentecost corresponds with an old festival that the Jews participated in. But God reframed the festival and he sent a tornado-like wind in the upper room where the disciples were hanging out. And they began to speak in languages that they hadn't studied before. They began to speak in unknown, known languages. And so they, were, they left the upper room and they went out into the marketplace. And, the, and it so happened because it was Pentecost and people were there from all around the region that they began to hear them in their own language. And so they were trying to figure out, I don't know about you, but I'd be trying to figure out what in the world is going on. These men don't have passports. Last time I checked, Mary, who was there with the disciples, she didn't marry Jesus' mother. She didn't have her passport stamp. How in the world do they know all these languages? So they concluded that these men and women were drunk. Because you know, when you drink too much alcohol, you you talk in different languages. Apparently. And so they were like, man, these men and women are drunk. I don't know what's going on. And then Peter, who was one of Jesus's disciples or apprentices for the years that he was on earth, stood up and said, hey, these men are not drunk because it's only nine in the morning. But this is a fulfillment of Joel 2 when he says that that the spirit would come down and that he would rest on all flesh. Look, So he explains that this multilingual miracle is actually a fulfillment that God was going to preach the gospel in, to every kin, every person, un, every language in all of the nation. Does that make sense? And so let's look at the content of his message. Look at Acts 2, 22 and 23. Look what it says. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs that that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge, you, you, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. But God raised him up ending the pains of death because it's not possible for him to be held down by death. Turn over to chapter 2, verse 36 and 37. Look what he continues on and says. He says, and when they heard this, they were pierced at the heart. Somebody say pierced at the heart. So what this means is, as Peter is getting up there preaching, he says that the people were deeply moved. They were so moved 
that he uses this idiom, cut to the heart. What it means is I'm so deeply emotionally moved, it almost feels like a knife has stabbed me through my chest cavity. This is what some of us would, this is what theologians would call conviction. Conviction. Conviction, this is when the word of God that's either being preached or read connects with the Holy Spirit, who is the second person of the Trinity, and God exposes inconsistencies in your life, letting you know that your behavior is not in alignment with him. The word that he uses for convict here is almost, I mean, any SVU fans in here, anybody love court shows? None of you. Okay, great. Fantastic. Six of you. And so I, I love when they get up there and they're questioning the witness and then the defense, then the prosecutor attorney comes up there and he just cross examines the witness. He, he's presenting evidence of, of truth to the witness and it's up to the witness because they don't want to be hit with perjury to recognize the truthfulness of the statement and to change in light of what is being communicated. So what happens is the Holy Spirit takes the word of God or the rema of God, which is the word that leaps off the page and, and he speaks to us. And what he's letting you know is you shouldn't, invo- you shouldn't be involved in gossip like that. Why, why, why did you tell that little easy lie to your friend? You didn't show up to that event because you were tired. You didn't show up to that event because you had something to do. No, no, you just didn't get up on time. You just didn't feel like it. What he does, it's like a, the Holy Spirit gives you like a little notification in your heart. You ever get that little notification on your phone and it just knocks you out of your sleep? You should like, I probably should have put this phone on sleep. But that's what the Holy Ghost will do. Everything will be going fine and he'll be like, mm-mm, there are some inconsistencies in your behavior that do not align with me. Therefore, I'm going to convict you about it, not to just bring guilt, but so that you'll repent, recognize the frailty of what you've done, and recognize your need for a Savior who is Jesus. Does that make sense, friends? So somebody's asking, like, well, 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 you know, sometimes people battle with their faith. They're like, well, how do I know that I'm really walking with Jesus? Well, when you experience conviction, conviction is a real sign. When you have your conscience seared and nothing convicts you and you can walk, watch whatever you want to watch on TV and things don't wear you out and things don't really irk your soul, you should be concerned. But when you have a soft, tender conscience and it's receptive to what God has to say, what he does is he uses that conscience to say, hey, you should not be involved in this because it is detrimental to your spiritual, your mental, and your emotional health. And if you do not change courses, you are going to continue to go down the road of destruction. Conviction is a beautiful thing. And so you might be wondering, well, pastor... What in the world were they convicted about in this passage? Why were they convicted? Well, I like how Dr. Tim Keller explains it. They were convicted because they were wrong about Jesus. They were wrong about Jesus. Here's the thing. During that time, and just like today, there are so many theories about who Jesus is. During this time, people were like, no, 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 he's a prophet. And they were excited about him being a prophet because he was going to bring them back to old time religion. Some of them are like, no, no, he's not a prophet. He's actually a political activist. And he's a political activist that not only cares about the marginalized, but he's going to overthrow the Roman oppression. Some said, no, 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 he's not just a political activist. He's, playing, he's a moral teacher that's opening affirming of all things, that, that teaches and preaches about love. And what, what they don't realize is that they tried to put Jesus into the neat categories that he actually does not fit into. Y'all know this about me. I love coffee. Iced coffee black. 
Nicaraguan beans, preferably. Lightly roasted. Brew that thing and then put it over ice. So it slightly dilutes it, but I don't believe in really adding cream or sugar into my stuff. Because I feel like, and I'm sorry, y'all hear me talk about this a lot. I feel like what it's doing, well, that's all going to change in the fall when pumpkin spice comes back. Amen, somebody. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm really basic. I'm a basic pastor, right? When pumpkin spice comes back, I'm going to do pumpkin spice. But until then, it's, it's black. Iced coffee black. And the reason that I don't like adding too much cream or too much sugar is because it dilutes the true taste of the coffee. It dilutes it. And what's happening here is they're diluting who Jesus actually is because of their preferences, because of their desires, and because of their various beliefs. It is actually a distortion of who he really is. And the truth is, is that they're not the only ones guilty, are they? Because a lot of us worship a Jesus that's a figment of our own imagination. We, we love that soft serve Jesus. That ice cream Jesus, the cotton candy Jesus, the, the snuggling savior Jesus, but we don't like the Jesus that demands our holiness. We, we, we like the kind Jesus, the, the one that brings the, the lady back or the woman, at, with the woman that cheated on her husband back, caught in adultery. We like the forgiving Jesus, but we don't like the Jesus that says, you better surrender your life to me. You better do as I say. We like that. What's happening is sometimes we dilute who Jesus is because we learned an apparition of Jesus through our preferences, but we don't know who he really is through the scriptures. Some of us want a social, a, a social activist Jesus. We want one that champions justice and cares about the marginalized communities. Some of, of us want liberal Jesus because don't you know that, don't you know that culture is changing and times are changing? And we should be more open and affirming to other lifestyles. We want that type of Jesus. We want the moral teacher. But Jesus is like, those are truncated versions of who I really am. And the problem with the disciples is they got Jesus wrong. But you might be asking, well, who is the real Jesus? Well, he tells us in verse 38, he gives us two descriptives. He said that he is Lord and he is Christ. He is Lord. What do you mean by Lord, Pastor? Lord means... That he's the divine ruler of the whole universe. It means that everything was made by him, for him, and through him. It also means that he has the same nature as God the Father. He's of the same substance, the same essence. This Godhead exists in three persons. But on top of that, it says, if, if we recognize it with him as the Lord, it means that he's the personal authority in each and every one of our lives. See, some of y'all want to praise your way through things, but your praise is not coupled with surrender. So God doesn't give you the breakthrough that you want because you're not surrendering your life to him. Right? You, have you ever seen on Facebook where couples, have the, where couples share the Facebook page? You ever seen that? John and Julie Smith, Bill and Michael, John, and I'm not throwing any shade at anyone that does that. It's okay, right? If that's what you do for your relationship, that's fine, okay? But here's the thing. Praise and obedience share the same profile. So there's some things that you just can't praise your way through. You have to submit to God through. 
He's like, when are you going to give me your ambitions? I know you got plans for your life. I know you've already figured out what school you want to go to. I know you already have a plan for your money, and I know you have a plan for your education. But how come you haven't consulted me about any of that when I am the one that's truly Lord of everything? If I'm Lord who I am, then why won't, you, why won't you take some time to seek wisdom from me? See, here's the thing. Many of us act like functional atheists because we believe and we trust the God to get us to heaven, but we don't believe that he can actually navigate us on earth. But Jesus is like, listen, I am the divine GPS system that will tell you about the blocks ahead, the issues ahead, so that you will know how to navigate life with joy and confidence, knowing that I've got your back in every season of life. So number one, he describes him as Lord. Then he gives him another adjective. It's the word Christ. Somebody say Christ. Now, contrary to what some people might think, Christ is not Jesus's last name. It doesn't say Jesus Christ on his birth certificate or his driver's license. Christ is actually a title. It's a title that means anointed one. What does that mean? It means he's supernaturally endowed to handle a problem in our lives. And so I know that you think your money is your biggest problem. I know you think that your boss is your biggest problem. I know that you think that your health is your biggest problem, and those might be issues, but no, no. Your biggest issue that each and every one of us have is the wrath of God, the curse of the law, and the sin that lives on the inside of us. And so there is nothing that we can do in our good works in order to reverse the effects of sin, to assuage the wrath of God, or to make sure that we follow the law of God. So Jesus decides in his mercy and by his grace that he's going to be a volunteer that leaves the serene place in heaven, come down into the nastiness of earth, and extinguish the wrath of God with his blood to fulfill the law of God and to reverse the effects of sin in our lives. See, that's why I love Jesus, because he's not just a, a sideline commander. He's one that actually immerses himself in the battle. He immerses himself in the pain, and he reverses all of the effects of sin. He is anointed to handle our big issue of sin. But let me just tell somebody here, if he's anointed to handle our biggest issue, which is sin, surely he's anointed to take care of all of those other issues in your life. Surely he can help you with your health and with your money and with your finances and help you get your life back on track after you had that divorce or after you had that breakup. He is anointed and able to help you in the difficult areas of your life, but it requires that you recognize him as Lord and submit to him as Christ. Are y'all hearing me, church? And so here's what I want to say, friends, is the problem is, is that they felt convicted. They felt convicted about what was happening. And so this verse, he says, Peter points them out. He says, you killed Jesus. That's what he said, you. Now, if I was there, I would have been like, um, Jesus, <clears throat> Peter, rather, what do you mean you? Because I wasn't even born at that time. How are you blaming me for the death of Jesus? I wasn't the one that sentenced him. I wasn't the one that demanded that he die. 
right? That was the Roman centurions that pulled out the execution. I didn't even shout crucify him. I've never put nails in his hands, nails in his feet. I wasn't even there. Jesus, how is it that I have committed this crime as well? Well, here's the thing. We all played a part in this capital crime because we are all responsible for God's preordinate plan to send Jesus to the cross. Why? Because of our sin, because of our nastiness, because of our misogyny, because of our lies, because of our deceit, because of our selfishness, because of the myriad of things. Jesus's blood, get this, is on each and every one of our hands. But let me just tell you, church, here's the beautiful thing. If you share in the blame, you also share in the benefit. <laughs> I don't know about you, but in August, in October, I'm going to bring in a financial advisor. He's going to do a free financial plan for all the people in this church that wants one. He's going to really help you. I've been with him for years on end. He's going to help you budget and get the life insurances and everything that you need. And what he'll do is he'll construct a portfolio of stocks and bonds and mutual funds so that you can have long-term growth, stability, and so you can get long-term returns. And can I tell you that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection offers us the same thing? He gives us long-term results because of the wealth of his profound benefits. Think about this. You and I have committed all the sins against God, but we have been forgiven of past mistakes. We've been freed from life's burdens, and we can have victory because Jesus gave us a pathway for salvation. This is it, friends. So Peter gets up there and he preaches that message. I don't know if he preached it like that, but he preached that message. And then the text says that 3,000 people responded and said, what must I do to be saved? And in that moment, they, were, they surrendered their lives. They recognized how they had played a role in Christ's death. And they got baptized as a means of a new identity in Christ. So when you're baptized, it represents how you've died to your old life and how you've been made new to the new life that you have in Christ. But the question is, is then what happens after that? Right? Because they got baptized. Now what? Because remember, this was a festival. So because this was a festival, people were, uh, people were coming from all around the surrounding nations. So what were they to do? This is what they did. They formed intentional communities that gathered around God's word, deep relationships, sharing a meal, and praying for one another. Friends, what I'm saying is the, the gatherings that we call crews is foundational to the early church. It's where they fostered unity. It's where they got support for one another. It's where they experienced spiritual growth. And friends, this is what I want you to know. Here, as we come up on September, we're launching something very similar. We're launching intentional groups of people that get together on a regular basis that are going to be going in the same spiritual direction. And I want to invite you, particularly if you have experienced loneliness or isolation, to consider being a part of a crew and develop relationships with people that are trying to grow spiritually and understand the Bible as well. Listen to me, friends. We've got some amazing things coming up. As you know, right now, we're in the middle of 21 days of prayer and fasting. This is day two. Amen, somebody. Day two. Now, listen, let me just give, can I be your pastor for a second? I'm all for you praying and jumping on Zoom and praying for us. If you want the link, it's on our page, acceleratechurch.tv slash pray first. Just go to our page. But I want to also encourage you to do some fasting as well. Although we do our Daniel fast in January, I want to encourage you to let go of something you really love physically in order to gain something from God spiritually. 
Because some of us really, really need a breakthrough from God in this season. And it's not going to happen if we're living, if we don't know how to dethrone King's stomach. Our stomachs dictate and guide so much of what we do. And the reason it's hard to hear from God through the word and hear from him through mental impressions and a myriad of other ways that God speaks is because we are stomach led, not spirit led. Does that make sense? I want to encourage you to jump on there and pray with us. But I want to also encourage you with this one thing. Can I put my pastor hat on for a second? All right. And I don't want you to get mad with me, but I'm going to pastor you for 10 minutes. Okay. Um, Seven minutes. I'm going to say this for three minutes. How about that? Three minutes. What I've noticed is that many people that call Accelerate Church home come in 10 to 15 minutes late during the service. I see you. Don't worry. I see you. Because it ain't nobody in here when we first get here. Poor worship team singing to me, Sarah, the baby, and, and Julian's. It's nobody. It's nobody here. But I mean, but they're bringing the energy. I'm like, oh, guys, you're doing the best you can do. I see it. But listen, I, I say that jokingly. But I say, but let me just tell you, you are missing a significant portion of the gathering that's intended for your spiritual growth. Significant portion. And it also is poorly reflecting on us as a church. Because we are believing that God's, God's lost sons and daughters are going to come home. Right? But when they come home, if they don't see any of the servants there, then they're going to think that we're not as serious about what we do as, as we could be. They're like, oh, they ain't serious. They don't get there till 945. And so what I'm saying, church, is, listen, it's not helping our witness with our community, and it's not helping our witness to reach people for Jesus. Let me just say that. So I want to encourage you, set your alarm earlier and get here five minutes early to talk to people, to spend time with them, and don't just rush out after service. Stay five minutes late to connect with people. Does that make sense? And the reason I'm saying this is not because I'm looking for the full room to preach through. That's going to happen eventually. But, but what I'm saying is this is about mission. Sunday mornings don't just exist for us to get a good word, some inspiration. They exist for us to be on mission to reach people far from Jesus. And when those people show up, and when those people show up, and like I said, it's me, Sarah, the baby, and the Julians, well, and the, and the hospitality team, well, it doesn't reflect well on us. And so we need to do better. Can we do better, church? Is that all right? <laughs> I had some other stuff I could say, but I'll just, I'll just leave it there. I just want you to know, we start at 9.30, not 9.47, okay? We are going to be a church that starts on time, okay? Um, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I know... A lot of times we have a casual approach to coming to church on Sundays because we've made it pro programmatic. We just, it's just another thing that we do. But that means that is very, very selfish because God did not just save you so that you can be served by the church. He saved you so that you can serve the church with the gifts that he's given you. Does that make sense? So do me a favor, and I want you to get here. But I'm excited because... Listen, that's going to help us long term. And I'm excited because we're going to launch these crews and they've been impactful. They're going to be impactful in people's lives. And listen, some of you guys have been a part of crews. I want to encourage you to lead a crew this semester. We have something coming up called Equip Night on August 17th. 
right? If you want to know more about that, you can meet us at the Next Step Station right in the back. It's going to equip you and teach you how to lead a crew, and it's going to get your minds focused on, hey, this is not just about me. It's an easy way to serve, friends. So I want to encourage you to make sure we make that happen, okay? So let me give us four things that the church, that a crew should do, okay? Four things from Acts 2.42. This is what they did in their crews. Number one, you will learn the Bible. Somebody say, learn the Bible. The text says that they were devoted to the apostles' teachings, okay? The apostles were the early people that followed Jesus. And what we have in the New Testament specifically is letters that the apostles wrote to churches that have been put into the 27 books of the New Testament that God uses as a means to grow and develop us. Does that make sense? And so the word of God is the primary source of nutrition that God uses to help Christians grow right? It's not prophecy. It's not mental impressions. It's not worship nights. It's the basic word of God. Reading it over and over again will help you grow. So what you're going to do in these groups, whether you join a teen crew or a mom's crew, whatever it is, or you join a group like I had last semester, which was a hermeneutics crew, which is the study of the Bible, you are going to learn the Bible. So you know why you believe it, so you have convictions about it and so that you can defend what you believe in a secular culture that's trying to rob you of your identity in Jesus. You, you need to know what you believe about sexual ethics. You need to know what you believe about the importance of the church. You need to know what you believe or what the Bible has to say about money. Because let me just tell you, your friends, your co-workers, your classmates will test you. Will they not? You going to that church again? What you spending all your time in there doing? We need to be able to give an answer for the hope that exists within us. Does that make sense? Here's the second thing. You're going to grow in your Bible. Number two, you're going to learn to love again. You're going to learn to love again. It says they committed themselves to fellowship. This is the word koinonia, which is deep, meaningful relationships that last even when someone is offended by the other party. It goes beyond these casual friendships. And these casual social interactions. And it moves toward genuine, selfless commitment with one another. So, so crews are the laboratory in which you can learn the skills you need in order to love again. I know you have been hurt, but God uses the church to help bring healing in your life. That's number two. Here's number three. Number three, you'll build relationships over a table. It's amazing how Jesus uses tables so many times to build relationships. So whether you're, you're eating food or whether you're drinking coffee, you're going to develop the connections that you need so that you can grow in closeness with one another, creating and fostering genuine bonds, deepening these connections, and nurturing your sense of belonging. Because sometimes the reason we come late and we leave early is because we don't know anybody in the church. We're a little apprehensive about that. And if, you're, if this is your first time here, hi, <laughs> welcome, here. welcome home. Welcome home. I'm glad you're here. I'm just talking to the kids real quick, so I just want you to... But I don't talk like this all the time, so I promise you, September, I'm not going to talk like this. I'm going to talk really, really, really sweet, like Joel Osteen, and just really encourage you. I promise you. But I'm just trying to help the children real quick. Is that okay? So if you planned your visit today, welcome home. I promise you I'm going to talk nice, but, but I just need to tell the children, come here on time so you can develop the relationships you need and develop the bonds that you need so that you can be on mission and transform the world, not treat it like a program. Here's the second. Here's the fourth thing we'll do. We'll pray with one another. 
there is something powerful about when Christians pray together. It's like the earth moves. It's like God does something in and through it. You'll develop a robust relationship of people that love you, that want to help you grow in a relationship with Jesus. Amen. So I just want to encourage you today, church. Like, if you don't know Jesus, this is what you can do. Fill out a connect card. Give us as much information as you feel comfortable with. Take that to the next step station, and we would love to help you take the next steps in your Christian journey. If this is your first time here, but you feel like this is home, well, we want to encourage you to attend the growth track. It's an opportunity for you to learn more about the church, discover your purpose, and get connected to life here at ACTV. Like, you need to be a part of a spiritual family. And what I'm telling you is that this can be a place where your life can be transformed. And so, amen. Amen, somebody. This can be the place where your life is transformed.